How can you tell if a relationship has become cold? Or if cold is too strong of a word, only calling to mind extreme dysfunction, how can you tell if a relationship has lost its spark? How can you tell? You know, one way is if lovers stop praising each other. When love is in the air, praise is in the air. You're so beautiful. You're so handsome. You're such a wonderful provider. You're an excellent listener. You're just fun to be with. And and this isn't just something for the early lovebird stages of a relationship. The most wonderful thing to see are couples who can't seem to get over each other after years together. A few years ago, Dave and Barb Airy were in my home group, and I don't think we could get through many evenings without one, if not both of them, gushing over one another, expressing appreciation or affection for the other. And if you're smiling, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Praise, right? When we stop praising, it's a sign that something is off. So too it is with our relationship with God. Our praise to Him is an indication of the health of our relationship with Him. So, my question to you is, how are you doing praising God? When you think of Him, do you say, in the silence of your heart, you're such a wonderful God. You're so patient with me. You're so generous towards me. You're such a good provider. You're so good to be with. And this too isn't just for new believers in the lovebird stages of fresh out of conversion. The most wonderful thing to see who Christians are Christians who can't seem to get over God after years of walking with Him. And when you spend time with them towards the end of their days, their love for the Savior is evident. They love Him more than when they were first converted, not less. And you can tell by the way they speak about Him. Their love is evident by their praise. How about you? How's your love towards God what do your thoughts and words about him reveal about your relationship with him some of you will be encouraged as you think about that question some of you will be discouraged as you think about that question and some of you will be somewhere in between but to all of you this text this morning has life-giving words. Our text is about praising God. But it doesn't merely command you to praise. It actually helps you to praise. So, do you want to be helped to praise this morning? Do you want to move your heart 
towards the one that all of you know is worthy of praise, but you're just not feeling the feels. Then turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 135. Psalm 135. We started a new series on prayer this morning, looking at various texts on prayer in an effort to help us pray. The disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. We ask him the same. I thought it fitting to begin this series with a prayer of praise. Psalm 135 is on page 519 in those blue Bibles in front of you. Let's just read the whole psalm and then we'll dip into each section. 135 verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for he is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and in the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it is who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against all Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to the people of Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not hear. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouth. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. The beginning and end of the psalm make it clear this psalm is about praising God. Verse 1, praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord. Verse 21, praise the Lord. These verses also make it clear that this is a, this is a summons to praise. So this isn't just a psalmist praising. This is a psalmist commanding praise. Praise. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. So if you will, imagine with me in the days of the old covenant, those serving in the temple. They aren't simply to trim the lamps in the holy place or ensure the bread of presence is on the table or merely guard the entrance to the holy place. 
These servants are to offer to the Lord the sacrifice of praise. This is a command. And then notice the expansiveness of the command in verse 19. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Who does this apply to? Everybody. It's a universal command. It's not just a call to the house of Aaron. Those were the priests. Or to the Levites. Those who served in the temple. It's a call to the house of Israel. It's a call to you who fear the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is commanded, praise the Lord. Christian, when was the last time you thought about your obligation to praise? Do you know that praise is not just a good idea or something to do when you feel a particular way? It's commanded of you. Praise is a matter of obedience, of righteousness between you and the Lord God of heaven and earth. I wonder if that might help you sing a bit better on Sunday morning. Although I confess you sang well today. I wonder if this might help you be here on Sunday morning. I wonder if this might help you thank God for the itty-bitty blessings throughout the day which then might lead towards more spontaneous prayer. Praise is a matter of obedience. God commands your praise. And then the rest of this text shows us why. Why is it right for God to command praise? To be honest, if any man were to command praise, you would instinctively recoil at the pride and arrogance of that. But not God. It's right for him. Why? And this is where you're going to find help, by the way. These reasons that we're about to walk through, they're going to help you stir your heart towards greater love and affection and praise. First up, praise the Lord because he's good. Verse 3 says, praise the Lord for the Lord is good. Sing to his name for it, his name is pleasant. Short verse, straightforward verse, clear verse, first line, praise the Lord. Why? For he is good. Second line, same thing, sing to his name. His name is representative of who he is. Why? For it's pleasant. His name is pleasant. The very simple truth here is that God is good, and his goodness is a reason to praise. What do we mean when we say God is good? First of all, we have to separate this from how we talk day in and day out. So we often talk about the neighbor down the street as a good guy. And what we mean when we say that is that he's friendly. We mean that he's generally upright. We mean that he's kind. We mean that he's going to help us in a pinch with our lawn or with our drive in the snow. But mind you, we just know and we make allowance for the fact that, of course, this guy has faults. It's, it's a given in our mind that, that he could get drunk one night or lose his temper and go ape on somebody or lust after a woman in his heart. You see, when we say someone's good, it's just, it's a good that only goes so far, right? 
This is not what we mean when we talk about God as good. To say that God is good means that he's entirely good. It means he's 100% good. It means he is pure good with no faults and no blemishes and no shortcomings and no inadequacies, nothing. He is the blazing sun of goodness. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him, Psalm 92, 15. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34, verse 8. When we say that the Lord is good, it is a simple and black and white statement in the midst of a complicated and gray world. Who feels like the world is complicated? Who feels like everything has to be nuanced? Every good we know Every good person, every good institution, every good nation is tinged with imperfection at best or a dark underbelly at worst. But not God. Never God. You are good and do good. Psalm 119.68 He is the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James 1.17 This is one reason why we praise the Lord. Because He's good. And what's more, this good God chose us to be His. Turn your eyes back to verse 4. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. The psalmist marvels here at God's choice of Israel to be his special people. Years before, Moses marveled too. He said this in Deuteronomy 7. He said, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. You see, long before this day, God graciously chose Abraham and promised him that in the future his offspring would bless the whole world. Those promises were then handed down to Isaac and then they were handed down to Jacob through whom the 12 tribes of Israel came. And now, here's the psalmist just standing in this river of blessing as one who belongs to the people of God. And so, of course, he can't help but to praise God because he he belongs to and is loved by this good God. And if you trace this out in biblical theological themes, what you will see is that this does not just apply to Israel of old. This applies to the church of Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.29 says, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. 
And so this verse applies to you. This good God chose you. And why? Why did he choose you? Did he choose you because he saw a spiritual interest on your part? Did he choose you because he saw ahead of time that you would choose him? Did he choose you because you were more upright than most? No, he, he chose you because he chose to set his love upon you. And that's it. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He blessed us in the Beloved. This is the doctrine of divine election. That God, before the foundation of the world, chose to set His love upon a particular people. This can be a controversial doctrine, but according to Scripture, this is a reason to praise. Christian, isn't it wonderful to know that before you were ever born, God chose to set His love upon you in Jesus Christ? That's steadying, that's joy giving. That is fear dispelling, hope giving, love kindling, praiseworthy. Now, if you're not a Christian, what does this mean for you? Does it mean that you're just out of luck? No. Another truth abundantly clear in Scripture is that God saves His chosen people through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're not a Christian this morning, God would not have you to ponder the question, am I elect? Instead, He would have you to ponder this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. See, the reality is nobody deserves to be blessed by this good God. Nobody. You, me, everybody. We have not lived for his glory. We have sinned against him time without number. We deserve nothing from him but the punishment of his law, which is eternity in a place called hell. It is frightful, terrible, painful, and just. Yet. Yet. That's why he sent Jesus. Jesus lived the God-honoring life you should have lived took the punishment you deserved upon himself upon the cross. He rose again and he promises forgiveness and eternal life to all who turn from their sin and trust in him.
Would you like to stand in the river of God's blessing this morning? Would you like to be his people? Would you like to praise him because he chose you? Then trust him. Respond to Jesus Christ and you will show yourself to be one whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world. And like the rest of us, you can rejoice in the sovereign mercy of God. We praise him because he's good. We praise him because he chose us. And then thirdly, we praise him because he's great. You know, you can have all the good intentions in the world, but if you don't have power to follow through, those good intentions aren't going to amount to much. Fortunately, that's not our God. Look at verse 5. For I know that the Lord is great and that our God is above all gods. Now, the first way we see his greatness is that he is above all gods. Be, Be clear, though, the expression like that, that he is above all gods, it doesn't imply the existence of such gods. It just recognizes that they're believed upon by others. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 that, that idols have no real existence and that there is no God but one. And yet, idolatry and the worship of false gods have consistently been a temptation for God's people throughout the ages, then and now. Then it was Baal and Molech. Now it's money, pleasure, or sex. Pick it. You know, I wonder how much we'd be helped. I wonder how much we'd be helped by simply to calling by simply calling to mind his greatness. One of my favorite texts for our call to worship on Sunday mornings is 1 Chronicles 29. I hesitated to say this because then you're going to be like, man, we do 1 Chronicles 29 a lot. So just forget I said it and just listen to this text. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God and Father of, uh, I'm sorry, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Let's sing. Our God is great. I wonder how much we'd be helped to praise if we just recognize for a moment that he's great. And another way we see his greatness is in his sovereign power. Look at verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth. In the seas and in all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who brings lightning for the rain and brings forth wind from his storehouses. In contrast to lifeless and so-called gods, God is the sovereign God who really and truly 
exercises dominion from sea to sea and shore to shore. Nebuchadnezzar, do you remember him? That great king who was humbled for his pride in the book of Daniel. Do you remember what he said when he came to his senses? God had struck him and made him like an animal for a period of time. And then when he was humbled to recognize that he was a mere man and that God was God, he regained his senses and he confessed this. His dominion, God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Daniel 4, 34 through 35. The psalmist confesses the same thing. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 115.3. Here in Psalm 135, the psalmist emphasizes his sovereignty over creation and nature. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain, and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Church, who is it who's in charge of every drop of rain? Our God. Who is it who's in charge of every snowflake? Our God. Of every gust of wind. Of every day that's sunny in 75 and every day that's snowy in negative 20. Our God. He is so great. And I confess, I forget to reflect on his fingerprints in such everyday matters. I don't walk outside and remember that the warmth on my skin from the summer sun is from him. I don't look at the unique design of the snowflake on my glove and remember that he made it. I think I'd be helped to praise him if I did. Another way we see his greatness is in his sovereign power displayed in salvation. Look at verse 8. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both man and beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all the ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Follow me. This is a comprehensive view of salvation. The psalmist begins by calling to mind their deliverance. Israel was enslaved in bondage and oppressed by the greatest superpower on earth at the time, the nation of Egypt. But Egypt and her gods were no match for the power of God. By his mighty hand, 
Through signs and wonders that you could read about in Exodus chapters 7 through 12, God judged Egypt and freed his people. The psalmist then calls to mind the promised land. Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. These were powerful kings at the very beginning of Israel's conquest, and God drove them out along with all the kingdoms of Canaan. What power? And Israel had rest in the promised land. The the psalmist then calls to mind the future. He speaks of the vindication of God's people in a coming day. I take it at this point, Israel was no longer in the land, and yet God promises that he will not forget them. He will act on their behalf. He will restore. Now, just put yourself in an Israelite shoes. If you're an Israelite, what kind of effect do you think recounting this, his past and his future, would have on an Israelite. It would have a praise-inducing effect. Remembering what God has done and what God will do will have that effect on a person, right? Well, this should have the same effect on you. Because when you trace these themes out, they speak of greater realities accomplished through Jesus Christ. The deliverance of Egypt points to the cross. Brothers and sisters, we were all enslaved in bondage and oppressed by the greatest superpower known to man ever, our sin. And just as Israel could not free herself, so too neither could we. And so God, with his mighty arm, came down and Jesus accomplished our exodus. Jesus was the Passover lamb who died to set us free. And so we are free. We are free and we are hopeful about where we're headed because you see the promised land points to the new heavens and the new earth. When I think about these victories in battle, Sihon and Og, and if you look at Deuteronomy, they actually conquered 60 cities before they actually took the land proper. I think about these inhabitants of Canaan that are driven out by our warrior God. Brothers and sisters, these speak of a coming champion on a white horse who will do this. Listen to Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Brothers and sisters, do you long for the day when the entire world will be in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ? It is coming. It is coming. First Corinthians says, 
Jesus will destroy every rule and every authority and every power. He will clear the promised land of its inhabitants. The promised land is the entire new heavens and the new earth. Jesus will clear it out. And then God's people will live in God's place under God's rule forever. Amen. This is a comfort in the middle of life's troubles, isn't it? Trouble is not the last word for us. Persecution and unchecked ungodliness all around. And upside down immorality in the world. That's not the last word. Opposition to Jesus and his people is not the last word. Jesus is coming. You remember how the psalmist called to mind that God would vindicate his people? He will when Jesus returns. So what we have here in these last few verses, Christian, (laughs) is your past and your future. You have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb who will return and usher you into an eternal kingdom. And he has all the power and all the might to carry it out. No one and nothing will stop him. He is above all of the so-called gods. He is sovereign over nature. He is sovereign over rulers. He is sovereign over all things. No one can stay his hand. Holy smokes. If you are not stirred to praise, check your pulse. And yet the psalmist isn't done. We have one more reason to praise his name. We praise him because idols are nothing. Look again at verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Why do you think the psalmist brings this up? We know idols are nothing. We know false gods are no gods at all. Why does he bring this up? Because we are easily given to worship them. Listen, throughout the Old Testament, the gods of the nations lured God's people away time and time again. And it is the same for us. We're lured away by money. We're lured away by forbidden pleasure. We're lured away by entertainment. We're lured away by a desire for respect. We're lured away by almost anything. It doesn't even take a good lure. 
the goal of our enemy is to get us to move towards something, anything other than God himself. And if we move in that direction, we begin to spiritually wither and decay. A, a lifelessness begins to creep in. And why is that? Because idols have no life in themselves. And so those who give themselves to them become like them, lifeless. Those who make them become like them and so do all who trust in them. Christian, are you feeling lifeless this morning? Are you feeling somewhat numb? Somewhat unresponsive? Somewhat cool toward the things of God? It may be that you have been lured away, enticed to seek your good in something other than God himself. In the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis asserts that one of the devil's tactics is to get you to pursue something you think will be good and give you nothing in return. Have you been duped? What should you do? Turn your face towards God in praise and let the blazing light of his glory warm your heart praise him for his goodness praise him for choosing you praise him that he is above all gods praise him that he's sovereign over creation sovereign over kings and rulers and nations and time and history and sovereign and intends to do you good in the end praise him when you are cold you move to a heat source in the dead of winter you want to get near the wood stove, and just let it warm you. Oh, Christian, if you're spiritually cold this morning, let your relationship with the Lord, if it has lost its spark, draw near to God through praise and let him warm you with all that he is. Now, this is a series on prayer. And I haven't talked much about prayer today. Actually, I have. I just haven't cast it as, hey, I'm going to talk about prayer. In this text, we are shown a key ingredient, brothers and sisters, to our prayer life. Praise. Beloved, in your prayer, in your personal prayer, devote time to praising God. And if you think, well, duh, 
I just charge you to keep tabs on what you pray for just a few prayers. And my guess is that what you'll see is that confession or requests or just trying to get your mind from wandering takes up this much space and praise takes up about this much space. Intentionally, add praise to your prayers. And be careful not to to turn it into a supplication. Oh God, help me to praise. That's a supplication. Stop it. Oh God, or don't turn it into a confession either. Oh God, I don't praise you enough. That's a confession. Stop it. Just praise him. God, thank you that you're so patient with me. God, you are so generous. Oh, you're so merciful, Lord. You're so wonderfully good to me. You provide for all my needs. Lord, I praise you for your goodness. Lord, I praise you for your perfection. Lord, I praise you for your power, your sovereignty, your grace. On and on. Go with it. And do this up front in your prayers. Open up your prayer like we open up our worship service with praise. And if you can't think of anything to praise him for, if your mind or heart feels like it's in a fog, then open up to a psalm, maybe this one to start. Open it up and don't say to yourself, what do I need to do in response to this text? Think instead, what do I learn about God from this text? What do I learn of his character? Of his works? Of his intentions? Of his might? Of his grace? Of his son? Of his spirit? Of his eternality? What do I learn about God from this text? And then take it and just praise him for it. Some of you struggle in prayer because you don't praise him in prayer. Listen, praising him and reflecting on his praiseworthiness is a spur to prayer. It helps you pray. It gets you, it gets me outside of our own small little worlds. And it gets us caught up into the bigness of God. Praise God, beloved. Praise God. He is good. And he is good to us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, your goodness and your might and your mercy are more than we can fathom. We praise you for it today. We praise you for creating, for saving, for ruling, for reigning, for the eternal glory that awaits all who trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.